From New York, this is Democracy Now! When it comes to diplomacy to end the war, it depends entirely on whether Russia gets to a place where it's actually interested in stopping the aggression that it started. And we've seen no evidence of that um, in, in, this, in this moment. As the war in Ukraine enters its ninth month, we look at the Biden administration's unprecedented military spending on Ukraine as lawmakers consider a new $50 billion aid package, which would bring the total to over $115 billion. We'll speak to the Quincy Institute's William Hartung, author of the new report, Promoting Stability or Fueling Conflict the impact of U.S. arms sales on national and global security. Then to Jackson, Mississippi, to speak with the NAACP about the Environmental Protection Agency's civil rights investigation into the roots of Jackson's water crisis. We will continue to highlight the egregious conditions of Jackson's water system and how the actions of state actors have caused discriminatory impacts. But action from this Congress and the entire federal government is needed to ensure that there aren't similar crises in other communities. And the ACLU is asking the Supreme Court to overturn an Arkansas anti-BDS law that penalizes companies that support boycotts of Israel. We'll speak to the publisher of the Arkansas Times, who sued the state to overturn the law. I have the right to boycott anyone I want to, and the state has no business getting involved in that. Period. It's none of their business. We'll also speak to the ACLU and the director of the documentary, Boycott. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. In Ukraine, thousands of people in and around the Russian-occupied city of Kherson have fled as Ukrainian forces battle to retake control of the strategic region located north of the Crimean Peninsula. Ukrainian soldiers continued their advance over the weekend as Russia's military continued drone and missile attacks across Ukraine cutting off electricity to over a million homes. Russian attacks have downed some 40 percent of Ukraine's power system as the winter's fast approaching. Meanwhile, in the southern city of Mykolaiv, residents have not had access to clean water for the past six months. Officials there say Russia closed off the city's fresh water source after occupying the adjacent Kherson province, and that the pipes have been destroyed in fighting. Catastrophe. Everything is being damaged. We would need to change hundreds of kilometers of pipes. We could assume that, yes, it is some kind of revenge, because even if it happened by accident, why don't the Russians let us do the repairs and free the civilians of the so-called torture by water? Earlier today, officials in France, the U.K. and the U.S. rejected Moscow's allegation that Ukraine is preparing to use a radioactive device known as a dirty bomb within its borders. President Volodymyr Zelensky said Russia likely made the charge because its forces are planning on deploying such a weapon. On Friday, Zelensky accused Russia of deliberately stalling passage of 150 ships carrying grain exports to countries around the world under a U.N. broker deal, which is set to expire next month. 
In Washington, Republican leadership has split over U.S. military support for Ukraine. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell urged President Biden Friday to send more military aid and vowed a Republican Senate would continue backing the funding. But House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy has said domestic issues should be prioritized. The U.S. should not deliver blank checks to Ukraine. Since the start of the war, the U.S. has granted over $60 billion in military and other assistance to Ukraine and planning to send billions more. Xi Jinping was named head of China's ruling Communist Party as the Communist Party Congress wrapped up Saturday, ushering in a third term for Xi as China's leader. Lawmakers abolished presidential term limits in 2018, meaning Xi can remain in power indefinitely. President Xi also announced his top political team stacked with loyalists. This is Xi Jinping as he introduced his appointees to the press Sunday. In the face of new challenges and tests on the new journey, we must be highly vigilant, always maintain the sobriety and prudence to catch up with the examinations, and promote the strict governance of the party across the board without ceasing, so that the central party will continue to flourish in its self-revolution and always become the most reliable and strongest backbone of the Chinese people. In a dramatic scene Saturday, former President Hu Jintao was abruptly escorted out of the closing ceremony of the Communist Party Congress. He'd been sitting next to Xi, a move that some speculated was an assertion of Xi's dominance. Chinese state media later said it was because the former leader was not feeling well. Despite Xi's grip on power, protests against his rule have spread in China and beyond, following the display of a protest banner on a busy overpass in Beijing earlier this month. Authorities have censored news of the protests from websites and social media, but the protesters' words have since been scribbled on public restroom doors in China and on posters displayed in universities around the world. They read in part, dignity, not lies, reform, not cultural revolution, votes, not dictatorship, citizens, not slaves. In the United Kingdom, former finance minister Rishi Sunak is expected to become the next prime minister after Boris Johnson pulled out of the race over the weekend. Sunak would be the first British prime minister of South Asian descent. He previously worked for Goldman Sachs, is believed to be the wealthiest member of the House of Commons, with an estimated net worth of over $820 million, along with his wife. Sunak is largely favored to win against leader of the House of Commons, Penny Mordaunt, when members of the Conservative Party cast votes on who will replace Liz Truss, who resigned last week after just six weeks on the job. In Italy, far-right leader Giorgia Maloney was sworn in as prime minister Saturday. Maloney's government will be led by a coalition of right-wing parties and figures, including Matteo Salvini, the anti-immigrant populist and former interior minister, and former prime minister Silvio Berlusconi, who's faced myriad charges of corruption, fraud and sex offenses. Maloney's own party, Brothers of Italy, is allied with Spain's Vox Party and other right-wing and neo-fascist parties in Europe. In Iran, teachers are on a two-day strike as anti-government sentiment grows across the country. Labor unions have also launched strikes in the food and oil industries. This comes as protests for women's rights have entered their second month following the September 16th death of Masa Amini while in custody of the so-called morality police. International solidarity demonstrations are also continuing. In Berlin, some 80,000 people took to the streets Saturday. I feel very good because we are here to tell we are with you, to all Iranian people. Yes. Okay. It's a ma ma Masa Amini's voice. 
In Burkina Faso, Ibrahim Traoré was sworn in as an interim president just weeks after he led a coup and overthrew the country's president. It was the second military coup in Burkina Faso in just eight months. The mounting political instability comes as Burkina Faso faces an ongoing jihadist insurgency and deteriorating humanitarian situation. The U.N. says some five million people in the country need emergency assistance. Here in the United States, the White House is urging student loan borrowers to keep submitting applications for up to $20,000 in federal debt relief after an appeals court Friday temporarily blocked Biden's student loan forgiveness plan. The move comes in response to a challenge by six Republican-led states that argued Biden overstepped his authority when he launched the initiative. Just hours before the court stayed the plan Friday, Biden touted its success while speaking at Delaware State University. Now, less than a week, just close to 22 million people have already given us information to consider this life-changing relief. And in total, more than 40 million Americans stand to benefit from this relief. Meanwhile, some 700,000 borrowers were left out of the student debt relief plan because their loans are overseen by private lenders and not the U.S. Department of Education. They're urging the Biden administration to include them in the debt forgiveness plan. A federal judge has sentenced Steve Bannon to four months in prison and a $6,500 fine for criminal contempt of Congress after he refused last year to comply with a subpoena issued by the House January 6th committee. Bannon vowed to appeal and will remain free for now. If his appeal fails, Bannon would become the first person to be imprisoned for contempt of Congress in more than half a century. The House committee investigating the January 6th insurrection has delivered a subpoena to former President Donald Trump, seeking documents and calling on him to testify on November 14th. In a letter accompanying the subpoena, the committee writes, quote, We have assembled overwhelming evidence, including from dozens of your former appointees and staff, that you personally orchestrated and oversaw a multi-part effort to overturn the 2020 presidential election and to obstruct the peaceful transition of power, unquote. Meanwhile, Axios is reporting a senior White House lawyer warned Trump's team against the president signing a sworn statement with false claims of voter fraud. On Saturday, Trump railed against the subpoena during a Republican rally in Texas. He also repeated his false claims about the 2020 election being stolen. The election was rigged and stolen, and now our country is being destroyed. I ran twice. I won twice. And now, in order to make our country successful, safe, and glorious again, I will probably have to do it again. On Friday, President Biden said during an interview it's his intention to run again in 2024. Two judges dealt a blow last week to Republican-led efforts to intimidate and suppress voters. A court in Florida's Miami-Dade County Friday dropped voter fraud charges against a man who was arrested in August by officers with Republican Governor Ron DeSantis's Office of Election Crimes and Security. Robert Lee Wood had a felony conviction, but was unaware he was not allowed to vote under Florida law. Separately, a judge in Texas dismissed a charge against Ervis Earl Rogers, who was on parole when he waited over six hours online to vote in the 2020 primaries in Houston. In Texas, casting a ballot while still serving a sentence, including parole, is punishable by up to 20 years in prison. 
In other voting news, the sheriff's office in Maricopa County, Arizona, is investigating voter intimidation after at least two armed people wearing masks and tactical gear camped out near a ballot drop box Friday. And in Philadelphia, at least 19 University of Pennsylvania students were arrested after they stormed a football field and disrupted the school's homecoming game to demand UPenn divest from fossil fuels. The group Fossil Free Penn is also urging the university pay property taxes to support the funding of city public schools and help save a low-income housing complex located near the university. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. As the war in Ukraine enters its ninth month, NBC is reporting a bipartisan group of U.S. lawmakers are planning a new military aid package for Ukraine that could be worth as much as $50 billion that would bring the total U.S. spending on Ukraine to a staggering $115 billion. This comes as Ukrainian officials are expressing fear U.S. aid may decrease next year if Republicans regain power in Congress. Last week, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy said he will not, quote, write a blank check to Ukraine. At a fundraiser Thursday night, President Biden criticized the Republican approach, saying, quote, these guys don't get it. It's a lot bigger than Ukraine. It's Eastern Europe. It's NATO, Biden said. For more, we take a deeper look at arms sales under President Biden with Bill Hartung of the Quincy Institute, author of a new report titled Promoting Stability or Fueling Conflict, the Impact of U.S. Arms Sales on National and Global Security. In it, William Hartung writes, quote, aid designed to help Ukraine defend itself from Russia has proceeded at the most rapid pace of any U.S. military assistance program since at least the peak of the Vietnam War. But the United States has failed to offer an accompanying diplomatic strategy aimed at ending the war before it evolves into a long, grinding conflict or escalates into a direct U.S.-Russian confrontation. William Hartung, welcome back to Democracy Now! Why don't you take it from there? Talk about what you found with arms spending under President Biden and what this means when it comes to diplomacy. What is possible? Well, it's interesting. Biden seemed like he was going to take a different approach. Uh, he described Saudi Arabia as a pariah regime. He said the United States would not check its values at the door when it came to arms sales. He said there would be no blank checks for Trump's favorite dictator in Egypt. Uh, and yet, here we are a year and a half or so into his administration. We're back to business as usual. Arms are flowing to Saudi Arabia. Uh, congressional efforts to condition aid to Egypt on human rights con uh, concerns have been largely cast aside. Um, as mentioned, there's a huge flow of arms to Ukraine to defend itself, which I think Defensive arms are reasonable, but without a diplomatic strategy, uh, pouring weapons in uh, and hoping for the best, I think, is a very dangerous approach. So, um, you know, the question is, where are we now? And I think, you know, the, the, the one glow of hope is Congress. Uh, the recent Saudi decision to collaborate with Russia on oil prices has caused great anger in Congress. And there's a, a bill by uh, Representative Rokana, Senator Richard Blumenthal, it would suspend arms sales to Saudi Arabia and uh, share parts and support uh, for at least a year. Uh, there's also a war powers resolution in the House and Senate that would um, cut off all U.S. military support for Saudi Arabia and push it to finally end its brutal war in Yemen. So uh, while Biden has fallen back from the kinds of uh, 
promises he made uh, when he was being elected. Uh, there's still a strong core in Congress and in the advocacy community for a more restrained arms sales policy. And I think Saudi Arabia and the UAE are sort of at the center of that, but it's it's a larger issue. So what caused President Biden to change his position on Egypt and Saudi Arabia, which he said he would uh, be taking a very different approach on at the beginning of his term. How powerful is the military-industrial complex? I mean, we saw at the beginning President Biden pulls out of Afghanistan. Uh, NATO looked nearly like it was possibly going to disband. And now everything has turned around. Yeah, I think there's two pieces. One is just kind of this outmoded ideology that says the United States has to have global military dominance, and that in order to do that, you need to sell weapons, uh, you need to make some unsavory alliances in order to be able to project U.S. power into various parts of the world. Um, they've fallen back into that mode. But then, of course, there's the weapons industry. And we found in our report that um, of the $100 billion in new major arms sales offers under Biden, more than half of them involve weapons uh, built by just four companies, Lockheed Martin, Boeing, General Dynamics, and Raytheon. So those companies are doing everything they can to make sure the U.S. sells to as many countries as possible and as wide array of systems as possible. They've got 300 lobbyists just amongst those four uh, companies, and they employ former government employees, former heads of the Pentagon's arms sales agency. Uh, they tout the jobs related to arms sales as a way to rope in members of Congress to support things they might otherwise oppose. Um, so that that sort of bedrock of the military-industrial complex is something that every administration has to contend with. Uh, and, of course, we've also seen foreign influence. As the Washington Post recently revealed, many, many former military officials uh, are on the payrolls of Saudi Arabia, the UAE, uh, other repressive regimes, helping them shape their militaries. And of course, coming from the military, knowing you're going to get a payoff from one of these regimes may also influence how you treat those regimes uh, when you're actually in power and in the military. So, so the, there's, there's a lot of money at stake, and it, it shapes policy in ways that are detrimental to human rights and peace and stability. Very good for Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, and their cohorts. Do you find when you talk, when you question the massive U.S. military funding for Ukraine, um, that you're attacked by the establishment in the United States for being pro-Russia? Well, I think, yeah, there's a lot of that going around. And I think it's, you know, it's, it's got a very Cold War flavor to it, obviously. But I think the question is, how do you stop the killing? How do you end this war in a way where Ukraine has its sovereignty intact, can move forward as a nation, uh, where you don't have a long, grinding war, where these kinds of abuses go on indefinitely, where you don't risk uh, a U.S.-Russia confrontation, uh, a confrontation between nuclear powers that could escalate to the nuclear level? Um, and, uh, you know, our organization is uh, supportive of supplying weapons to Ukraine to defend itself. But that can't be kind of a one-note policy. And there certainly can't be a policy that says we're going to crush Putin, that backs him into a corner. Um, you know, former head of the Joint Chiefs, Mike Mullen, has pointed out that that's the, the thing you least want to do, that you really have to look for some sort of off-ramp. As even President Biden has said, 
and with respect to his concerns about the the uh, nuclear issue, there has to be an off ramp. But they haven't defined that. We don't know. Perhaps there's some sort of be- behind the scenes talks going on. Doesn't appear so. There's got to be a diplomatic strategy, a, a diplomatic track. Uh, it can't just be about um, weapons and and we're going to defeat Putin. As emotionally satisfying as that might be, it's a nuclear armed power. You don't want to make him think that his survival is is uh, in the mix here uh, because you don't know what that's going to lead to. So so I think really it, it's got to be a, a discussion on the merits of what's the balance of diplomacy uh, versus support for defense of Ukraine. And it's been very hard to have that conversation. So, uh, but I think it has to happen, and I think it will happen. Um, Bill, talk about your recommendations. For example, strengthening the ability of Congress to block dangerous sales by requiring congressional approval for major deals. Well, when the Arms Export Control Act was passed in the 70s, uh, because— it was uh, arms sales were going through the roof to the Middle East and elsewhere. Congress had very little oversight or even information about it. Congress was given the right to vote down major deals. Uh, but as a result of various court cases, they had to have a veto-proof majority of both houses, which has never actually occurred. Uh, there was a deal voted down under Trump of bombs to Saudi Arabia, but he vetoed that congressional action, and Congress could not overcome the veto. So this approach would say, for major sales of consequence, Congress has to actually approve it. There's got to be a positive congressional vote of approval so that they don't need a veto-proof majority. Uh, It puts some power in the hands of Congress over these sales that not only implicate human rights but could get the U.S. involved in uh, major conflicts. So um, it would be very much um, what was intended decades ago in terms of giving Congress a role but has never truly been uh, fulfilled. And there is um, an act called the National Security Powers Act. There's other sort of avenues where this might come about, but it, it would make a, a big difference. And, of course, the public would have a much stronger role because they could press Congress on some of these things like arming the Saudi regime, and Congress would have the power to really do something about it. I mean, you have right now a group of Democrats calling for the U.S. to cease selling arms. We're talking about multi-billion dollars to Saudi Arabia after the kingdom joined Russia um, in announcing it'll cut oil production by as much as two million barrels a day, Bill. Yes. Uh, you've got Ro Khanna and uh, Senator uh, Blumenthal of Connecticut. Uh, you've got Senator Menendez, who said we should cut off uh, security cooperation, although he's left a bit of a loophole of, of to what might be left over viewed as for defending U.S. personnel. So it's, it's, his, is, his is a less clear demand. But there, there's, uh, I think, going to be growing uh, support in Congress for some sort of arms cutoff because uh, Biden went to Saudi Arabia, you know, kind of head in hand, you know, begging Mohammed bin Salman to do something about oil prices— uh, and he did exactly the opposite, and he did it in collaboration with Russia, which was a slap in the face uh, to Biden, certainly, and and just underscored the fact that the idea that you can do business with this regime and use arms sales as a way to influence to do anything that would benefit the United States is uh, nonsense, is a fool's errand. And so I think Congress is recognizing this, and there may be some renewed um, energy behind things like a war powers resolution to end U.S. support or a direct cutoff of and suspension of, of arms and spare parts. So it's, we're, we're at another turning point. But the question is, 
can this lead to real change? Because, of course, we had the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, a huge upsurge of concern in Congress, uh, newfound attention to the role of Saudi Arabia in the war in Yemen. Uh, but the Saudis seem to have dodged that, and Biden was warming relations with them. Now we've got another chance to rethink that. And I think Congress and the public are going to have to do the pushing. The administration has said there will be consequences for Saudi Arabia of its recent actions, but they haven't specified what those consequences will be. And there's a danger that they will somehow once again uh, keep the arms sales flowing. Bill Hartung, I want to thank you for being with us, national security and foreign policy expert at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. We'll link to your report, Promoting Stability or Fueling Conflict, the Impact of U.S. Arms Sales on National and Global Security. He's author of the book Prophets of War, Lockheed Martin and the Making of the Military-Industrial Complex. Next up, we go to Jackson, Mississippi, to speak with the NAACP about the EPA's civil rights investigation into the roots of Jackson's water crisis. Crisis. Stay with us. She was once a great lady standing tall with her head held high. Then a war came along and broke her heart and left her there to die. With her gown in tattered shreds, she raised a weary head and vowed she'd rise again. Looking back to yesterday, she's come a long, long way since then. Mississippi Song by Dorothy Moore. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. As we turn now to Jackson, Mississippi, where the Environmental Protection Agency is launching a civil rights investigation into whether Mississippi officials discriminated against Jackson's majority black residents when it refused to use federal funds to address the city's dangerous water crisis. The EPA said Thursday it's probing Mississippi's Department of Health and Department of Environmental Quality over their role in the crisis that left tens of thousands of mostly black households without drinking water. Jackson's main water treatment plant was damaged after flooding in August, and viral videos showed brown liquid flowing from taps. In 2021, residents lost access to drinking water for weeks after a deep winter freeze. Even when the water's running, residents have faced months-long boil water orders. A complaint filed by the NAACP led to the EPA's investigation. NAACP President Derek Johnson lives in Jackson and called the state's record of divestment systemic neglect. Mississippi's received federal funds to address drinking water needs since 1996, but gave Jackson funds just three times. For more, we're joined from Jackson, Mississippi, by Abri Connor, director of the NAACP Center for Environmental and Climate Justice. Welcome to Democracy Now!, Abri. It's great to have you with us. Why don't you lay out the issue, including the governor mocking Jackson for its water crisis, and what Congress allocated for Jackson, and yet it didn't actually go there? Yeah. Well, to your point earlier about Jackson only getting uh, federal funds 
out of three of the last 25 years, that really kind of goes to the heart of what is the issue. Uh, the water in Jackson has been weaponized against them by the governor, uh, by the state, because oftentimes federal funding for water infrastructure, it flows to the state first. So even though we have the promise of Justice 40, we have the promise of uh, historically disadvantaged communities like Jackson, Mississippi, to be prioritized um, whenever it comes to federal funding. That's not necessarily always the case. So. Last month, Mississippi Governor Tate Reeves uh, came under criticism for disparaging his own capital city, Jackson. Um, this is Reeves speaking during the groundbreaking ceremony for Jones Capital LLC headquarters. I've got to tell you, it is a great day to be in Hattiesburg. It's also, as always, a great day to not be in Jackson. Um, <laughs> Always a great day to not be in Jackson. Jackson is overwhelmingly African-American, over 80 percent of the city. Abri, talk about this. Yes. So Governor Reeves has mocked uh, Jackson residents. The governor, um, at points, it seems, thinks that it's a joke. Um, and so that was one of the reasons why we felt like it was so important to file this Title VI complaint um, with the EPA. Because it's not fair that Jackson residents for decades have seen the disinvestment in their city. It's the state capital, and it's also 83% black. Um, but then you have a governor who's making comments like that, and individuals don't even trust their tap water, uh, where they're spending their tax dollars, where they should be able to have safe drinking water, and that's not the case. Uh, but this Title VI complaint really demonstrates that we're not going to uh, sit aside and allow for someone who is in uh, an elected position in the state to be able to allocate federal funds to places like Jackson to get away with discriminating against a large black city. Uh, but this is something that Governor Reeves has been doing for a while. Even in his previous positions, like lieutenant governor, when he was treasurer, he utilized those positions to try to harm Jackson residents. Uh, and so this has been a long time coming. You've had a, a number of black mayors who have asked the governor, who have asked the state for funding to fix the water infrastructure issues in Jackson, Mississippi. And because there has been neglect, because there has been intentional disinvestment, quite frankly, for a number of years, the number keeps growing for how much it's going to actually cost to fix water infrastructure issues in Jackson. Uh, this is also an issue because, again, there's supposed to have been a prioritization of funding, of federal funding in places like Jackson, Mississippi, by the EPA, by other federal agencies. But because the money flows to the state first, uh, then they get an opportunity to, quite frankly, weaponize these funds that are supposed to be utilized for Jackson against them. So last month, Abri Connor, you testified uh, on the hearing on water infrastructure. In your prepared remarks, you said the effect of climate change on black people has finally come into national focus because black people experience the most horrific impacts from historic disinvestment in communities. Can you elaborate on this? Yeah. Well, what we've known is that for years, black communities have faced intentional disinvestment 
When you look at places like Allensworth that tried to build in California, in the Central Valley of California, nearly 100 years ago, the reason that they uh, weren't able to actually move forward was because the company actually moved the wells that were supposed to be in Allensworth to Alpaw. That was a majority non-Black city, neighboring city to Allensworth. Uh, we've seen this disinvestment in other Black communities. We've seen it in Flint. We uh, saw the crumbling of road Rosewood, for example, because the governor failed to respond uh, in a manner, in a, in a timely manner. Uh, and so now we're finally getting to a place where uh, we see what's happening in Jackson. We see Congress actually also opening up an investigation with Homeland Security as well. Uh, and then we have the EPA, who is opening for the first time this new external civil rights uh, office and Office of Environmental Justice with Administrator Regan. Uh, but there were for years uh, a time where the EPA was not even opening up Title VI complaints. And so it's not like the environmental justice issues weren't happening during that time. It got to a, a place where, quite frankly, groups felt like they needed to actually sue the EPA to get them to do their job, to help historically disadvantaged communities. And so it's, it's a time that uh, we really have an opportunity to make right the wrongs that have happened to black communities and to other historically disadvantaged communities for years. Um, but this is really just a first step uh, because again, this is really an opportunity for the EPA to also demonstrate that through this complaint um, is going to prioritize the communities, is going to prioritize community groups who have been a part of this effort uh, and that we're able to actually get the resources to flow directly to Jackson, Mississippi. Um, you have a letter that was written um, to the governor by Democratic representatives Benny Thompson of Mississippi and Carolyn Maloney of New York, asking how Jackson's water system is crumbling despite Congress authorizing hundreds of millions of dollars last year to Jackson. And compare that to the white suburbs right outside Jackson. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's it's shameful that the governor uh, has not prioritized actually funding uh, the water infrastructure that's needed in Jackson, Mississippi. So in my conversations that I've had, not only with the current mayor, but with former mayors as well, uh, this is not something that the governor did not have notice of. Uh, so there's been a long history of black mayors actually asking the governor to uh, fund the water infrastructure in Jackson, Mississippi. And just as recently as last year, the governor vetoed uh, $47 million actually going to Jackson, Mississippi. And the funding, the funding that Jackson did end up getting ended up having additional strings attached to it. So for uh, the American Rescue Plan funding that Jackson has, it's the only city in the state that has two different approval processes that it has to go through in order to get projects approved. So it has to go through the um, Department of Environmental Quality and also the Department of Finance and Administration. It's the only city in the entire state that has to go through this process. Um, there's no uh, actual legislative history as to why specifically only Jackson has to go through this number of processes, but it actually goes to the uh, disinvestment that Jackson has continued to see 
the a number of hurdles that Jackson has to go through in order to try to rebuild. Uh, it's not like people at the local level aren't trying, but when they're faced with a number of hurdles and obstacles over and over again um, at the state level, again, where they have hundreds of millions of dollars um, with the bipartisan infrastructure law, there were hundreds of millions of dollars that were placed uh, into allocation for historically disadvantaged communities for places like Jackson, Mississippi. And that has not happened uh, with the most recent intended use plan that the state, for example, submitted to the EPA. It capped loan forgiveness uh, for these infrastructure plans at $500,000, knowing that it's going to take a lot more than that to fix the water issues in Jackson, Mississippi. The, the draft plan that the state actually intended to send to the EPA before then would have completely removed Jackson from even being able to apply for, uh, for, the, for the money in the bipartisan infrastructure law. And so uh, when you see these kinds of gains being played by the governor, by the state, when you have a black community who is in the middle of a water crisis, and by the way, the most recent intended use plan was submitted during the midst of this water crisis, then you know that there's a level of intentionality to every single state, every single step that Governor Reeves has taken. So obviously this uh, reeks of uh, Flint. I mean, it sounds so similar to Flint. We did a Democracy Now! Uh, documentary called Thirsty for Democracy, looking at Flint, where the activists were saying this is not just an environmental problem, uh, the lack of access to clean water in Flint, Michigan, another majority black city. Um, this is a problem of democracy. How will your complaint, how will your—is it called a lawsuit—affect um, cities like Flint? So it's an administrative complaint um, that you are able to file directly with the federal agency in this state. In this situation, we filed it with the Environmental Protection Agency, uh, and we filed it under uh, the t under Title VI for purposes of regulatory um, kind of overseeing what's happening in the state. And this complaint actually. Um, is representative of the number of years that historically disadvantaged communities, number one, could not utilize the EPA to help with issues related to discrimination um, in environmental ha hazards, environmental racism. Uh, but this was really an opportunity for the EPA to demonstrate to these communities that it had been silent towards for a number of years, that they are also going to prioritize historically disadvantaged communities like Jackson, that they're going to prioritize the communities that it left behind for almost a decade, and that they're going to try to come up with solutions um, that's going to center Jackson residents. And so we hope that this not only helps the residents in Jackson, because they've been dealing with this for years, but that it also can serve as a model for other governors who, quite frankly, have also been slow to a responding to historically disadvantaged communities, to black communities across the country. So they can understand that there is a, a mechanism that we can use to hold them accountable and say that we are not going to allow for black communities to be left behind when we understand that safe drinking water, that living in communities where we are bearing the brunt of all the, this contamination, 
pollution, that there is going to be a mechanism that we can utilize and ensure that we are prioritized moving forward. Ivory Connor, we want to thank you so much for being with us, uh, director of the NAACP Center for Environmental and Climate Justice. Next up, we go to Little Rock. We'll look at how the ACLU is asking the Supreme Court to overturn an Arkansas anti-BDS law that penalizes companies that support boycotts of Israel. We'll speak to the publisher of the Arkansas Times, who sued the state to overturn the law. We'll also be joined by the ACLU attorney who appealed to the Supreme Court and the director of the documentary Boycott. Back in 30 seconds. Flower of Cities by Naya Barghouti. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The ACLU has just asked the U.S. Supreme Court to overturn an Arkansas law that requires all state contractors to sign a pledge declaring they will not boycott Israel. Arkansas is one of 35 U.S. states that have passed legislation to criminalize or discourage BDS. That's the Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions Movement, which seeks to boycott Israel and Israeli goods to protest violations of Palestinian rights. The ACLU originally sued Arkansas on behalf of Alan Leverett, the publisher of The Arkansas Times. He appears in the new documentary, Boycott. I just object to government saying, we got a big old wad of money over here, but we're not, and we'll give it to you. We'll, we'll advertise with you, but here's some, here's, some, here's some conditions that you need to meet first, such as here's the political position you need to take regarding foreign policy, for God's sake, and we're in Arkansas. The documentary Boycott also looks at the case of Bia Mawi, a Palestinian-American uh, speech pathologist in Texas. She lost her job of nine years for refusing to sign a pledge that she would, quote, not boycott Israel during the term of the contract. I have a lot of family members that still reside in the occupied territory. seen firsthand the injustice and inequality that goes on there. They close off main roads, only permitting Israelis to drive on those roads. But basically, the, the core idea is to make it as hard as possible for them to function and to have any livelihood at all. Then you have school closures and arresting young children. Not, you 
going to stay quiet and just go on with my life while I know that this law is going to make it okay to continue this kind of oppression against the Palestinians. An excerpt from the documentary Boycott. We're joined now by three guests. Julia Basha is with us, director of Boycott, creative director of Just Vision Media. Brian House is also with us in New York City, senior staff attorney at the ACLU, which has asked the Supreme Court to overturn Arkansas's anti-BDS law. They're both in New York. And in Little Rock, we're joined by Alan Leverett, publisher of the Arkansas Times. Um, so, Alan, let's begin with you. Explain why it is you decided to try to overturn this law that was passed in Arkansas. It's for us, it's just basically a free speech issue. Um, the state of Arkansas is requiring us to uh, take a political position uh, in return for advertising. Uh, we're taxpayers here in Arkansas. We have as much right as anyone else to do business, to earn that business on our merits. And uh, we're being told that, no, you have to also take a political position. You have to pass a political litmus test in, toward, in, in order to uh, uh, do business. And so <clears throat> when uh, we refused to sign and the state uh, uh, started shutting down our advertising, our state advertising, we sued. So if, for us, it's just we're not boycotting anyone. We're, for us, it's purely a First Amendment issue. This is still America. So explain what happened, how you saw this clause. Um, uh, you are a free newspaper. You rely on advertising for your income. It involves a lot of state money. Um, talk about what happened. You've been getting money for years. Oh, yeah. We've, we've, I started the Arkansas Times 48 years ago. And uh, so we've always done business with the colleges, with the health department, with the hospitals. And uh, so we started after this law was passed. We didn't we didn't pay any attention to it. It was obviously another culture war uh, exercise, and we we considered it meaningless. And um, so, but we started getting these notices. You need to sign this. You need to sign this. And I just kept throwing them away because you think about there's hundreds of thousands of transactions that the state of Arkansas or any state does every day, uh, for everything from sheetrock hangers to uh, 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 school teachers. And so I just figured, how in the heck could they ever enforce this thing? It's, it's, a, it's a stupid law to begin with. And, but there was one purchasing manager at one college that, uh, that stayed on it until he finally uh, overrode the marketing department and cut off our advertising. And, and talk so that about— was when, Let's talk about who brought this law uh, forward. The Republican majority leader of the Arkansas State Senate, uh, Senator Bart Hester, um, the sponsor right. of that law. We want to go to now a clip of what he had to say. He's the sponsor of the Arkansas anti-boycott bill as he talks about his religious motivation in passing the bill. The state is not protected from the church, but the church is protected from the state. I would say if there's 35 members of the Arkansas Senate, I would say 35 members would say that they are believers and followers of Jesus Christ. The question for the House is passage of Senate Bill 513. Prepare the machine, Mr. Clerk. I would say probably half would identify as evangelical. They understand how important it is to support Israel. 69 yeas, 3 nays, and 0 present. The bill is passed. 
State Senator Bart Hester would later say he then hopes Jews will believe in Jesus Christ. I wanted to bring Julia Bacha, we got that clip, from her film Boycott, uh, into the discussion. You directed this film. You also have two remarkable moments in the film in Arkansas, Julia. Um, one with a Democrat, a Democratic senator, um, uh, who you caught up with, and you asked him about whether he supported the bill. He had an amazing response. Talk about him. When we started uh, making this film, there was very little public conversation or debate about the anti-boycott laws and the consequences for everyday Americans who want to exercise their political rights. And we decided that we were going to ask some questions. And we went into the, Arizona, the Arkansas state capitol uh, and had the opportunity to interview Senator Bart Hester, whose <laughs> clips you show here. And as part of our time uh, in the capitol, we also met with uh, Senator Greg Ledin, um, who is a Democrat, who voted for the bill, like the vast majority of Democrats in Arkansas and in many other states across the country did. Uh, many of those uh, Democrats today, like Ledin, are saying that they didn't actually understand what this bill meant. They didn't understand uh, the consequences and how it violated the First Amendment rights of Americans. I think a lot of the reason why some of the Democrats are beginning to shift their opinion now is due to the lawsuits that the ACLU has brought around the country. There's been several, and in all of them, except the one by Alan Leverett, uh, the courts have decided that the anti-boycott bills are unconstitutional. At the same time, uh, these bills have continued to proliferate, now targeting other issue areas. So there are now anti-boycott bills targeting your ability to boycott the fossil fuels industry. There are anti-boycott bills targeting your ability to boycott the weapons industry. Um, and I think it's um, critical to start asking our elected officials uh, why they voted for these bills and if they understand uh, what they actually and what's mean, amazing which is what we try to do in the film. In Arkansas, is the Democrats said, listen, we vote on thousands of bills. He said, I wouldn't support it now. I didn't realize. And then, um, Julia, you interview the rabbi of, um, is it B'nai Israel, the largest synagogue in Arkansas, based in Little Rock. And he says he wasn't approached on this. He said, I consider myself a major supporter of Israel, um, but I don't like this bill. We found that there is a, a discrepancy between the motivations that some of the right-wing uh, conservative evangelical elected officials are saying that is motivating them, which is this um, is based on a very uh, literal reading of the Bible that uh, leads them to believe that they need to do everything that they can possibly do to restore uh, the, the biblical borders of Israel, uh, which you know, ultimately, according to their reading of the Bible, will lead to the second coming of Jesus Christ, uh, when, as, you know, Senator Hester speaks about that in, in the film, um, you know, Jews will have uh, one last chance to convert to Christianity or they will go to hell. So they have this—they're influenced by this biblical reading that is they're now bringing to their policymaking. Uh, but when you actually look at how diverse, uh, you know, the Jewish community in the U.S. is on this issue, and we got to talk with the rabbi of the largest synagogue. Synagogue, uh, in Arkansas, who says he's absolutely opposed to anti-boycott bills and talks about how important First Amendment rights and free speech is for all communities in America.
Alan, the New York Times did a piece on your case in Arkansas. Uh, again, Alan Leverett is the publisher of the Arkansas Times. It's got an interesting cover. It's the picture of a typewriter, and it says, We're a small Arkansas newspaper. Why is the state making us sign a pledge about Israel? If you can then take us through the le your legal challenges, your wins and your losses so far, and then we're going to bring Brian House into this conversation, who's now appealing to the Supreme Court. So, so this this bill has been passed in thirty some odd legislatures uh, throughout the country. It's basically the American Legislative uh, Exchange Council. Uh, one of these cookie-cutter bills that they have done with uh, Republican legislator, legislatures around the country. Um, and so we, appeal, we, we we sued the state. We lost in federal court here in, in Little Rock. Uh, and then also uh, we appealed, and then we won before a three-judge panel in the Eighth Circuit. It's a very conservative court. And then we, uh, the state appealed that to the, to the full circuit, and we lost uh, before the full circuit. And uh, so now we are uh, we have appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court and we're waiting to see if we'll be uh, if we'll get a hearing. You're both a publisher of The Arkansas Times and you're a farmer. I am. Uh, I raise heirloom tomatoes. Uh, I it's I'm very small. I, I have about a thousand vines and uh, <clears throat> I've been I live on my great grandparents farm. We've been in Arkansas forever. And uh, so I. I inherited my great-grandfather's old log house where my grandmother was raised. And so I have the most beautiful place on earth that I'm, I'm, I'm just uh, very, very lucky to live in Arkansas. I love Arkansas. And that's why we published the Arkansas Times. Well, um, uh, speaking of farms, we can also speak about climate change and this issue of this bill, this anti-boycott bill, being used as a template for so many others, like not going after the fossil fuel industry. I wanted to turn to the president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace, Laura Friedman, who's speaking in Julia's film, Boycott, about the role of the corporate lobbying group, the American Legislative Exchange Council, Alan, which you referenced, in shaping anti-boycott legislation. You may not care about Israel-Palestine, but you should care if it's being used as a hook to legislate in your states and at the federal level against free speech. How many words would I have to change in this legislation to use it to condition contracts and thereby quash free speech of anyone who, say, supports Black Lives Matter or is involved in protesting for environmental reasons? And it's like 10 words. It's a template. Why people are not more worried about it is just baffling. I mean, Brian House, you are the ACLU senior staff attorney. You've appealed this case to the U.S. Supreme Court. Just last week, we uh, did um, an hour on Rosa Parks, The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rosa Parks, a new documentary that's out on Peacock. Um, of course, she and Dr. Martin Luther King led a boycott, a bus boycott, of the Montgomery transportation system to get it to integrate, which happened like a year later. Can you put this in context and why you've decided to take um, Alan, Leverage's ca Alan Leverett's case to the Supreme Court? Sure thing. So, I, I think it's important to step back and realize that boycotts have always been a fundamental part of American politics. Uh, it's not for nothing that we say people vote with their pocketbooks. 
Uh, this country was founded on a boycott of British goods to protest parliament, and boycotts have been part and parcel of American politics ever since, from the Montgomery bus boycott uh, to the boycott of apartheid South Africa to boycotts across the political spectrum today, whether it's boycotts of businesses that support Planned Parenthood or boycotts of businesses that support the National Rifle Association. Uh, but what the Eighth Circuit held in Allen's case is that although the First Amendment might protect speech or association promoting a boycott, it doesn't protect the purchasing decisions at the heart of the boycott itself. And what that would mean is that states have the power to selectively suppress, censor, and penalize boycotts on disfavored topics, like boycotts of Israel. Now, that decision not only flies in the face of common sense, it also contradicts the Supreme Court's binding and unanimous landmark precedent in NAACP versus Claiborne Hardware. And that's why we think the Supreme Court needs to step in and correct this fundamental error. And can you talk about the other cases? I mean, Julia talks about them uh, in the film Boycott, using the example of an Arizona law, and also what happened in Texas with the Palestinian-American um, pediatric um, audio pathologist who could not believe one year when she's just signing off on her contract to uh, have her job with the schools, and it said, you will not support any kind of boycott of Israel. And she's this local pathologist. Why is she talking about Israel and a local contract? She won? She won. That's right. We've brought cases in Kansas, um, Arizona, uh, Texas, and, and another organization brought a lawsuit in Georgia. And in all of those cases, the federal courts held that these laws violate the First Amendment right to participate um, in politically motivated consumer boycotts. And what I think these cases show is how deep these laws reach into Americans' private lives. And they're asking people from all different walks of life, um, whether it's a speech pathologist in Texas, uh, a lawyer in Arizona, uh, a substitute teacher who wanted just to participate in a teacher training program in Kansas. All of these people are being forced to go on record and say, I'm not participating in boycotts of Israel. They're essentially being asked to disavow their First Amendment rights as a condition of earning a living. And, and, and that just fundamentally violates the First so Amendment. So what does it mean that this is going to the Supreme Court? First, they have to decide whether to take it. Is that right? That's correct. So the first thing we are doing is we're filing a petition for a writ of certiorari. And that's the justices decide whether this is a case that they're going to review uh, this term. Uh, four votes are necessary to take the case up for, for consideration. And what would this mean for you, Alan Leverett, as we begin to wrap up? I mean, you've been living with this case now for several years. What kind of response have you gotten in Little Rock and around your beloved state of Arkansas? Like uh, Julia pointed out, most people are still unaware that this is the law because it was it was passed through without any fanfare, without any uh, real news coverage. And so most people, when I tell them or they, they ask me about it and uh, I explain it to them, they just kind of look at me blankly and they say, well, what, what does that have to do with Arkansas? And it has nothing to do with Arkansas. It has everything to do with uh, culture wars. Uh, that are being waged in this country, particularly by the uh, Republican legislatures, uh, particularly ours.
With us, Alan Leverett, publisher of the Arkansas Times and heirloom tomato farmer, Brian House, ACLU senior staff attorney, and Julia Baccia, director of the film Boycott. Uh, she also uh, made the film Naila uh, and the Uprising, which just premiered um, at the Fisahara Film Festival uh, at the Algerian refugee camps of the Sahrawis. That does it for our show. Happy belated birthday to Robbie Karen. I'm Amy Goodman. Stay safe.